Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is one of our own. Today, we focus the Great Mind lens, lens inward. And we are thrilled to have Ruth Mortimer with us on the show. So welcome, Ruth. This is a pleasure to have you. I, I didn't foresee you on the guest roster for season three, and, and here you are. Thanks so much, Matt. I'm really excited to be here. I've been an avid listener, so I'm excited to join your guests. This is, uh, you are now in the uh, rarefied air of friend of the show, as we like to say. So, Ruth, we have some breaking news this week about you. Uh, your episode of Great Minds coincides with something we've been cooking up for a while internally, but are now sharing externally, and that's elevating you to the role of global president, which I am absolutely thrilled about. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, with that breaking news now in public, uh, on the Great Minds airwaves. Do they still ha have airwaves anymore? I'm not sure. Uh, we are thrilled about that, Ruth, and congratulations. Thank you so much. I did actually get confused. Having grown up in Britain, I actually thought I was being elevated to the President of the United States. So it's a bit of a blow, but apart from that, I'm very excited. Yeah, I think this might be a slightly better job these days. Actually, I think you're right. I'm going to withdraw my disappointment and I am super excited. Yeah, the list of problems and challenges, I think the severity level is just a touch lower. Yeah, you're right. We get to work on some really good fun stuff. I think I think this is definitely the better presidential gig. I think for the moment, yeah. So, Ruth, there are so many areas to cover. As I shared with you last week, our Crack Great Minds research team has been uh, combing the archives uh, from the Library of Congress to the National Museum uh, to various undisclosed locations and crypts underneath Trafalgar Square to get to the true heritage, true history, true story of Ruth Mortimer. So we're going to dive in and have some fun. And speaking of crypts and what's underground, I'd love to start going back to your time in Manchester and in UCLA and your work over 20 years ago, almost 25 years ago, working as an archaeologist. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And I'd love to go back. How did you get there? And can we talk about some of the remembrances of your time, both in the UK and the USA, as an archaeologist? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I originally got into archaeology because um, when I went to university, I got hooked on this idea. Um, and I loved this it's, I guess it's a storytelling concept of kind of constructing the past out of what you find. So that was what got me really hooked on archaeology. And I quickly became hooked on a really specific area, which was effectively the Middle East, um, which they call the cradle of civilization, which is potentially insulting to anyone else who felt that they also are the cradle of civilization. But what what that really means is that's an area where so many kind of interesting things emerged. Um, nation states for the first time, hugely sophisticated systems of administration within cities. All these things that are kind of hallmarks of how we live today started right back then. So um, I ended up going to work in a very small village in southeast Turkey near the Syrian border um, on a site which was investigating a kind of period of time in the Copper Age which is kind of partway between the Stone Age and Iron Age. And we were effectively trying to piece together 
I guess, the story of who those people were, what they were doing there and why they were there at that time. And I think the interesting thing about it that connects to everything I've done in my career is they're all human stories. They're human stories about people who travel. The interesting thing was that when we looked at some of the um, artifacts, the pottery, for example, lots of the symbolism on the pottery you discover is passed from village to village by married lines. It's, it's the women who are getting married and passing these um, designs to the next generation. And that's really a really interesting story about humans. And in fact, branding and marketing, thinking of you know, the Great Minds podcast and the industry we work in. So that was what got me hooked. Um, and when you talk about how I got there physically, I think um, there's something very interesting. I, I turned up in um, Istanbul and my boss at the time, um, a lovely man called Stuart Campbell said, don't worry, just get on a bus to um, the local town, which is called Karaman Marash, and someone will find you. And I looked at the bus timetables and this was a 16 hour bus ride across a country I'd never been to had no clue what I was going to do there. So I was really nervous about this and very kind of apprehensive. So I got this bus right the way across um, Turkey to this little village and I got off and I walked around and within about two minutes, someone spotted me on the street. And I, I guess I stood out because I was pretty much the only blonde woman in town. And they were like, oh, you must be Ruth. Come to the museum where we'll have a cup of tea. And so I went around this small town effectively having a cup of tea with so many multiple people. And eventually my boss turned up out of nowhere. I had no idea how he was contacted, how he ever found out about this. And we were embraced into this amazing kind of community. And I think the whole experience was such a positive one and such a great one about learning to do things that are outside your comfort zone, learning to kind of relate to other people who may not look like you on the outside or they may not be the same culturally, but that it's possible for you to relate to people wherever they are and have a really good time. So you were pretty young at this time and that takes uh, a little bit of bravery. Uh, uh, the word moxie uh, comes to mind uh, and also a, a tremendous amount of intellectual curiosity. Going back even further, were you curious as a young girl, where did that combination, not everybody has those two attributes. Some of us are brave, some of us are intellectually, intellectually curious, not all of us are both. Where did that come from? I think probably, I think probably it came from a mix of my parents. My dad is a playwright. So he's a he's a very good kind of natural um, storyteller. And my mum was a criminal social worker and she was really interested in, I guess, changing the story of people's lives. And both of them such kind of open minded people in terms of, you know, always be like being curious and being funny were the two big things in our house, like never never just accept something, think about it, work it out. What do you feel about it? This was such a big thing. And also be funny, because if you can't be good, and sometimes, frankly, I couldn't be good, at least be funny. That's fantastic. When I look back on that part of my life, you know, early 20s, in your case, even a little younger, uh, my first job was working for a, a very popular mayor of the city of New York at that time, a guy named Ed Koch. 
And he very presciently started something in the early 80s into the mid 80s called the Commission on the Year 2000. And it was a blue ribbon panel to plot a course for New York City's future. And I was fortunate enough right out of college off an article that my mom had cut out for me, a lead, to get a job as a policy analyst working for the Commission on the Year 2000. And it was a real crash course in how New York City worked what it was like then, what it was going to be like in give or take 25 years, every area you could think of, economic development, healthcare, transportation, waterfront development, on and on and on and on. And in my mind, that laid a foundation for me, which I still draw on today, understanding how a big city like New York works, when you can lift up the hood and look in the engine and kind of understand what all those parts are, I feel like that's always helped me. I'm guessing that that early foundation that you built in studying archeology span is similar for you, that you probably today still draw on a lot of those learnings. Is that a right instinct, a wrong instinct? No, I think you're right. And actually I think it's that feeling of being uncomfortable and curious, being uncomfortable and not minding that has been really important. I think that was true both from my childhood and I should mention here that, you know, my mum's family, we grew up in Scotland. I know I have a terrible Scottish accent, but my mum's family are Ukrainian and English. And my stepdad's family were Czech. So we didn't sound like everyone else. They called us the foreign family in the village where I grew up. And again, I think when I went as a kind of girl of Jewish heritage from Scotland to live in the Middle East in a, you know, in a um, Shiite village, in um, Southeast Turkey, I was out of place, but I never minded that feeling of being uncomfortable. And I think that feeling of being uncomfortable, but looking for the connections between people and being really curious about how you could make them, I think almost that's the foundation. That's fantastic. And not only the Middle East and Turkey, but you also at a very young age spent time in Australia and South America. How did you get to those two places and remembrances of those two unique, wonderful places in the world? Well, um, South America was always a place I was really, really interested in, partially because of the archaeology. They just have an incredible um, history. And I'm always really interested in places where you have this mix of indigenous culture and then you have the colonial culture, the Hispanic culture that had come there and how that ends up kind of um, shaping a place. It was just a very interesting, um, very, very interesting place to go. Same with Australia. Australia obviously had its hugely kind of important and beautiful indigenous culture. And again, then it had that European kind of, um, you know, colonial culture that had made it a particular kind of place. And I guess there's a, there's a tension in those places that makes them really interesting to me to get under the hood of, of how all those, how all those strands come together. And I think it comes back to that can be a really uncomfortable thing, but it also makes me really curious. And that's what life's made of. And somewhere along the line, you started to write and mm -hmm. found your way um, I guess initially as a freelancer uh, into the Centaur family and began a long, long run, a very successful run there. I think you also did some work for Channel 4, but mostly not B2B initially. It was more popular culture, I think, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was. I took part in a wonderful initiative that Channel 4 did called um, For Talent, where effectively um, they would get people to identify the talents of the future. And I think it says nothing good for me that um, I'm not sure I've heard of many of the people I identified as the future. And sorry to them if they're out there listening and you are the future. But it turns out maybe I wasn't good at that. Um, but I think what that introduced me to is that idea of kind of what what is interesting culturally how can you get under the skin of what's happening in culture which has since been really useful at advertising week and then for me the writing was a natural continuation I guess of that storytelling that we were doing with the archaeology there you're piecing together a physical record and saying what is this and filling in the blanks so to me, I guess my next step into journalism was a sort of natural progression of that. You were digging below the surface of these stories. And I started out actually not so much in um, marketing or business. I actually started out writing about politics and finance, um, which was an area politics has always really, really interested me. Again, it goes back to that. It's an uncomfortable thing, but God, isn't it interesting? It's it really is kind of where all the big decisions are made. So I was super interested in this area. And that was where I started writing. And that was an interesting moment because I often found I was the only woman in the room and I was a good 40 years younger than anyone else in that room. And it was quite an intimidating experience. Were there folks who mentored you back then? Because you know, you were in a male dominated industry. You were very young. You're still mid twenties. Absolutely. I mean, barely out of my teens. Who helped you looking back then? Who were some of the great minds that you followed? I think I've had some really excellent mentors. So one of them um, I would definitely mention is Andrea Vidler. She's the CEO of an agency group called TAG in EMEA. Um, she also was the CEO of EMI, um, and she was my CEO for a while at um, Centaur. And I think she was great because she always stretched me and pushed me and wanted to do the best things ever. And if ever I, um, if ever I sort of lost faith for a moment and thought maybe this isn't possible, she would be that person going, it's definitely possible and you can do it. And what's more, I expect you to do it on this timeline. And having someone who kind of constantly pushes you like that, I found enormously um, helpful. The other thing she was great at doing was giving you opportunities. So she was someone who, when she believed in you, I would say to her, Andrew, I want an opportunity. I create this business for you. I feel it's worth 26 million pounds, but let me run that business for you. And Andrea said, okay, okay. If you can create it, let let me give you opportunities to start running businesses. And I think somebody who listens to you and helps you progress like that is, is a real inspiration. Okay, but Andrea came a little later, didn't she? Was she there at Centaur way back then when you started? No, so actually it was another, another female boss of mine, I would say, who was a real inspiration, um, who was called Ellen Lewis. Um, and Ellen is a freelance writer now. And the reason I particularly pick out Ellen is I would say Ellen is that person who, even now, if Ellen was approached for a job she didn't think was right for her, she would tell them to come to me. That level of support over a period of kind of 20 years, I've lost count of the amount of jobs where people have said, hello, 
Ellen Lewis, you worked with her 15 years ago. And someone who has that much kind of emotional investment in you and belief in you, I just think it's hard not to feel great about that, not to feel great about yourself when it has that level of longevity. Absolutely. And somewhere along the line, you make a leap from writing about talent and pop culture and politics and uh, gravitate towards our world, the B2B world and advertising, marketing and that whole area, which going back to 2003, 2004, 2005, it's a very different landscape, right? 2003, Mark Zuckerberg is still, you know, on the Harvard campus. We're three years away from the iPhone. We're four years away from YouTube. Almost all the subjects of the thought leadership program that you now curate globally for us uh, did not exist in any form. What brought you to B2B uh, initially? So I think the thing that really attracted me to this sector about marketing, advertising brands is I think it's an amazing place where that idea of kind of culture comes together and shapes the sector and yet business too. And I loved that. I love that tension between marketing has to sit within the culture you operate in. That's the reason that, you know, global brands are global because they tap into something universal that appeals to everybody. Um, you know, and some local brands only work locally because they tap into that culture. So to me, this was an amazing place that was at the nexus of culture, of commerce, you know, of strategy, of what makes the world go round, really. And in a creative way. And I think for me, that brought together so many of the areas that I was interested in. I was like, oh, this is a really interesting sector. This is kind of what makes the world go round. And I, I like it here. Fantastic. So you also get appointed at a very young age um, as an editor of brand strategy. How old were you then, give or take? I think I was about 24 at the time. So 24 and you're made an editor. Uh, that's pretty heady stuff. Do you remember that conversation when your boss brought you into the office and offered you that position? You know what? What's terrible about it is I don't think I do. I remember I remember a lot about the job. We were a very we were a very small magazine, and our main currency was being terribly persuasive or maybe annoying. But what we were really good at is we would get, for example, we had people like the Disney CEO write for us about his strategy. Um, we would get we got Bill Gates to write about his strategy. And I think one of the best things about that job was being so young, you didn't realize what couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. So we would say, oh, wouldn't it be great? Oh, we're really focusing on this. Who would be great? I think Bill Gates would be really interesting. He'd be the most interesting person. Should we just ask him? And because you didn't think to yourself that will never happen, there's, you know, there's so many layers of corporate bureaucracy, you just went ahead and did it and somehow ended your innocence cut through. And people said, actually, okay, this sounds like a cool idea. Why not? A little bit of naivete can be a, a great driving force for business, I think. I think definitely when you don't have that level of cynicism or perhaps kind of set understanding, and I think it goes back to that curiosity, when you're curious about, oh, this could happen, and you approach it with that kind of open-mindedness, I think people are more willing to do things. And in that period, you also contributed and wrote for Design Week, 
um, and then made your way over to the marketing side. Uh, do you remember any of the stories in particular that you covered or oversaw as editor that you look back now and think of fondly? I think um, heading over to the marketing side, I think it's not so much the stories that stick with me. I think it was much more the kind of strategic thinking that I really got to get my teeth into. So some of the things we were working on at the time was it was a moment in time when news stopped making money in the media, where suddenly media companies were having a really difficult time um, monetizing news. The Internet had come up. And it had changed the whole dynamic of the media landscape. And lots of brands had a really big problem that we're still, we're still kind of struggling with now, that effectively, by making their content free on the internet, they had broken that link between people who'd used to pay for their newspapers and magazines, now expected to get it for free on the internet. So it was that hugely interesting time of change where the real strategy for us was, what will people pay for? If you're a magazine today, you have a website, you have a print issue, what, what will make somebody part with their money in this world where they think they can get it all for free? And so for me, the thing I think I remember most about that time is just how strategic it was and how it, it's actually a moment in time that I think almost everybody in the music industry and in the media industry went through together. The internet disrupted our entire business models. And then you have to find a route to how does how does what I do still have value in this world? So Centaur did, I think, better than most. But the sector overall was really challenged by the advances in technology and just the fundamentals of the business. Reflecting back, were there things that the magazine industry, which I think is and the newspaper industry, have suffered badly over the last 15 years as businesses. You know, you look at radio and digital radio and podcasting has given that new energy. When you look at the outdoor sector and other old traditional media, digital technology has given that new life. The newspaper and magazine, magazine industry have really struggled more than most. And a lot of the great names, iconic names, I mean, you know, brands like Time Inc. are gone completely over here in America. And I know Time Inc., they were a partner of ours in the UK, a global brand. Were there things and mistakes that were made with the benefit of hindsight that if you were, you know, Nero and ruling Rome, that you would do differently? Yeah, absolutely. I think the media industry devalued itself massively by effectively making all its content free on the internet. I think this is a problem that continues today. I think it, I just mentioned, I think it's the same issue that the music industry made. And what you see now is the music industry hasn't recaptured that value again. What's happened is it's now moved on to new players. It's with the streaming platforms, it's the Spotify and the Apple. They're the people who are um, capturing the revenue more so now. And I think for, um, I think for the media industry, it's been very similar. A lot of their advertising has moved to the big digital platforms. You know, it's moved to the it's moved to the Googles of this world. It's moved to the Metas of this world, and that's that's a really big problem. And I think that comes initially from that kind of gold rush of yes, let's be out on the internet and we have to be visible. We have to be in front of everyone. 
And I think particularly in the B2B world, there was a big rush for volume. And I think one of the things those big platforms did is they completely changed the nature of what a volume audience means. So if you're Google or Facebook, you have access to so many more users than any newspaper ever could, than any magazine, any B2B magazine ever could. And yet I think the media industry was still sort of chasing that big volume instead of pivoting and saying, actually, we have a different kind of audience. We know so much more about them. We know what context they're looking at things in. We have this valuable audience. So for me, one of the big issues I think the media industry has got stuck on is how do we deliver this big volume of eyeballs instead of how are we getting maximum value? Yeah, it's interesting. That, and I like the analogy when you look back at the record labels and how the failure to embrace technology and you may remember it only lived for a short period of time, but I remember Sony was very hot. It was called DATs, digital audio. And that format never took off. They were like little tiny cassettes, as I recall. And uh, along comes Steve Jobs and the iPod. And they take it all away from the labels. And you can see here what you're saying around the magazine industry, how the big Silicon Valley platforms and making everything available and creating a breed of customers who don't want to pay for anything. And I think there's a good analogy there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you saw was the early response was, oh, we can get people, we can get, you know, we can get lots of people too. We can compete with those platforms rather than saying, actually, what do we do that is ours, is different and is better? And let's make sure we really hone that because otherwise... We can never compete on that scale. These are global tech platforms. And I think the media industry didn't do a good enough job of understanding its real threat was itself not changing. You know, one of the things that uh, I love about you is we really build the Ruth Mortimer narrative is you never stop learning and you've reinvented yourself to stay not only with the times, but a step ahead. And you can argue that so many of these mediums that have been challenged, it's because the leadership teams were grounded in doing business a certain way and just hung on by their fingernails to keep trying to do business and do what they knew. Uh, and of course, that's destined to fail. Yeah, I agree. And I think we can look at some of the things we've done at Advertising Week during the pandemic, where you know, we run a lot of events, the pandemic could have been a really terrible time for us as a business where people weren't able to get together, we weren't able to travel to the events around the world that we normally would. And I think one of the one of the reasons I love working at Advertising Week is actually we went, okay, what's the opportunity? It's not going to stop. We're, you know, people are still going to want content, ideas, they're still going to want to do their jobs. So let's just find the way that you do that right now. And that kind of ability to adapt and openness to find new ways, I think is one of the reason I love working at Advertising Week. And I think whenever you work somewhere that just goes, let's hold on to the past by the skin of our teeth, no matter what, because I'm too scared of what's ahead of me, that just never works. Yeah, and here we also see with that bravery that we talked about earlier, you know, heading off to Turkey at, in your probably late teens, uh, how it all ties together. 
All right, so we'll get to advertising week, but before we get there, at some point you also evolve from writing and editing and events become part of the mix. And I know you have a, a near and dear uh, affinity. Well, affinity is not the right word. The Festival of Marketing has been a big part of your life. Let's talk about that, the early days. And you had some tremendous successes there. Yeah, well, I think for me, I what I really enjoy is just telling stories. And I enjoy telling stories that also, where relevant, help make people money and meet their goals. One of the things I've always really believed is, particularly commercial content doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to not be content that people would want to see and consume. You just have to be able to tell a really good story and be upfront with people about why you're telling that story. Um, and when I got the opportunity to um, run the Festival of Marketing, I didn't really think, to be honest, events were my thing. But I was like, OK, I, you know, I, I don't really know if events are my thing, but I, I want to try this. I want to run this business. I get to run all of it. I get to run the sales, the marketing. I get to run the operations of it. And that's really exciting. And so, again, that attitude of I, I thought to myself, yeah, this this looks pretty good. I'm going to give it a go. Um, and I started working on the Festival of Marketing, which is a great event. And I think the thing I really loved about that event was, again, it was all about thinking differently. This idea that B2B marketing doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be four people sitting on a panel agreeing. It can be really lively and interactive. And why, when we're marketing as brands to people, would you be doing all kinds of exciting stuff? And then when you talk about yourself, you do it in a really kind of dull way. And the thing I think we did well at the Festival of Marketing um, was that we made it really different and interactive. We had lots of different elements that really brought to life the different brands we worked with. And I think that that really energized me. Big successes. Lots of great people on stage from the business. And one of the things that you did there, which has been one of our hallmarks as well, a lot of people from the world of pop culture, Stephen Fry, many, many, many others. Anything particular that you remember and you look back that was better, went better than you thought it would? Or maybe once in a while with folks from pop culture, we had some rough moments, I recall, uh, with uh, Nicole Scherzinger a few years ago, where it was a little rocky on stage. Anything that didn't go well? I think um, I remember one particularly um, great interview I was doing with Alan Sugar. So for the benefit of people in the US, Alan Sugar is effectively Donald Trump on The Apprentice. Lord Sugar. Exactly, Lord Sugar. Um, and he's a very nice man when you meet him. Very charming, lovely. We had a lovely chat. We got up on stage to do the talk. And it became apparent to me that maybe it wasn't going to go quite the way I hoped when um, it appeared that Alan didn't quite know who the audience was. And I thought, oh, either I could, you know, either this will be a terribly awkward conversation or I'm going to play this for laughs. We're going to have some fun. And so Alan, Alan was saying things, you know, I don't really know who's in this room. What do you do? Do you sell windscreens? And so I think I said something like, Alan, this is the festival of marketing. I mean, the clue's really in the name, man. And everybody erupted laughing. 
And I did think that Alan might want to kind of walk off stage, but instead he braced himself and went, okay, fair enough. And from that second on, it was it was a great conversation. But I think occasionally you have those moments where your stomach drops and you think, will this person actually just walk off stage? You're going to have those moments, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I once, um, I remember once I had a particularly um, overexcited partner who had a particular length of time he had to um, deliver his content. And he went over and he went over and he went over. And the next people were standing there saying, I think he's taking our slot. So I spoke to the salesperson who's in charge of this partner. And I said, I think, I think he seems to be, does he not know the timing? And they said, oh, he knows the timing. But he said he might really push it. And I thought, as, as things went on, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is so rude. And so I actually got on stage and effectively staged an intervention and removed him from the stage a bit like a bouncer. And I led him by the elbow and he shouted, she's throwing me off. She's throwing me off stage. So I came back on, I told some jokes, we smoothed over everything. Um, and, and, you know, those are the kind of funny things that happen at events. You know, even now I still know this man. He always says, oh, do you remember that time I pushed things? And I said, yeah, and I had to actually come and throw you off stage. You're a grown man. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think you remember, tend to remember when things get off the rails like that. And, uh, you know, we had one like that with Sir Martin and Bernie Eccleston, the F1 scion. And uh, it was supposed to be 20, 25 minutes. And it it was like a sustained car crash because Sir Martin is a great interviewer and Bernie had no filter and said things like, you know, Hitler got things done and other things that by any other standard would be viewed as something you should never say, highly inflammatory, and a normal person would, you know, self-regulate their own tongue. And what made it so compelling was the lack of filter. Uh, And it went for almost an hour. The audience, the room was full. It was in the big theater. The room was full. And we ended up blowing the schedule completely for the day. And I had to go tell Yannick Bollere, the, you know, chief exec globally of Havas, that he wasn't going on that day. Um, In retrospect, I think I would have handled it the same way. The audience was riveted and the uh, content was was remarkable in many ways, not all of them good, but I think the word remarkable is applicable. Uh, But those decisions are tough. And sometimes you have to give, you do have to give someone the hook sometimes I find you you let it go. Absolutely. And I think it's also sometimes, I think probably the other ones I remember are ones where you can be kind to people and step in. I remember one of our, one of our partners had um, a terrible disaster where they got stuck in traffic and all their speakers were stuck in traffic and they had this slot. And so I didn't quite know what to do. So I decided, right, I know their research that they're going to present here. So I'm going to just stand up and make a session called the 10 things every CMO needs to know about this research. And I had no idea when I started on number one, what number four was going to be, number eight, number nine. Anyway, and I got all the way to number nine. They came in the door and I said, great news. They're here to give you the big finale. Number 10 is when we do a deep dive into the research. 
And, you know, my heart was racing. I was thinking, what a disaster. And afterwards, a man came up and he said, oh, I really enjoyed this session. I was just wondering in my notes, I didn't quite capture what number six was. Could you run through it again? And I was thinking, no, I made this all up on the spot. I can't remember (laughs) what number six was. But I was so pleased that for this man, it had been worth writing down. So your remit continues to grow overseeing a whole panoply of titles and content for Centaur, helping to launch and grow brands across the Atlantic, uh, over here. I think when you were there, we did some stuff with Celebrity Intelligence way back when, must've been almost 10 years ago. And uh, then somewhere along the line, Andrea taps you to also take over and run e-consultancy and to build a new business for them around education. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I definitely can't take all the credit there. I got to run e-consultancy with a great guy called um, Richard Robinson, who's a great, um, huge advocate, I think, for for women, for people of colour, who's a great person to run that business with. And really for us, we were, e-consultancy was and is an amazing brand that Centaur had acquired at the moment where it was founded in 1999 by a great guy called Ashley um, Friedlein. And it effectively rose up at exactly the right moment when the business world and the internet were coming together, when everyone had kind of no knowledge, but they knew they had to get their arms around the internet. So Centaur had bought e-consultancy because it saw it had such great scope for um, training all these marketers in what they should be doing in the world of digital. But roll forward to when Richard and I come to work there and what you see is that actually the world has moved on. All those people who knew nothing about the internet in 1999, now they've run digital teams for 10 years, 15 years. And so they're looking for something different from that brand now. They're looking to maybe be the next CEO or CMO. And so I think for me, the real challenge with e-consultancy that we were working on is how did you make that the right brand? It was effectively the expert leader in its space for you know 15 20 years and then when people have caught up with you how do you take that next step to keep being the expert day after day after day and I think that's a really interesting and great discipline for anyone with a brand is coming to a brand at the moment where that early hard work has worn off And suddenly you've got to reinvent yourself every day again. So that was the really exciting challenge for me. Great. And that was also quite a successful run. Uh, And that business continues uh, to thrive today. So let's now jump to uh, 45 Dean Street and the Groucho Club. And it was somewhere in the first half of 2019. And I was over in London uh, and we got together, as I often do with folks, without agenda. Just be nice to sit and have a cup of tea. And we're sitting in my favorite two chairs on the ground floor, first floor, as they call it, of the Groucho. And uh, all of a sudden, the conversation takes an unexpected turn. I did not know what was going to happen in that conversation. I don't think you did either. No, absolutely. Well, I think you managed to hit. I think we've talked here about all those things that really interest me. And it's always about that kind of new challenge, feeling uncomfortable. 
about being curious. And you said to me, hey, look, at Advertising Week, we have all these incredible events. We've got this incredible content. And we think we should be embedding ourselves more into people's lives, more year round. Be, we should be a business educating them. We're speaking to the greatest marketers on earth. We could be taking that out to the small businesses across the world, to people who otherwise don't have a chance to access this kind of information and education. And I thought, wow, what a vision. And I think the thing that really appealed to me about Advertising Week was it was that level of vision. You didn't say, oh, I think we could do an education segment to our business where I would have gone. You instead said, yeah, I've got a vision. Let's educate the world. Let's help all those small businesses. And it was something really meaty and exciting. And uh, that started a conversation and that led to a difficult one. Once uh, you made the decision to join our little merry band, you had to go back to someone who was very important in your life and have a difficult conversation with Andrea, who's remained a dear friend. She's actually our incoming uh, chair for Advertising Week Europe starting uh, after this one. Uh, so her reign will be 23 and 24. Uh, but that must have been a difficult conversation for you. I know how important Andrea has been and continues to be in your life as a friend and a mentor. I think one of one of the good things that Andrea taught me is that actually one of the one of the best parts of any job is when you see people who've worked for you go on to bigger and better things that really excite them. And that's something she's always believed. And in fact, you know, I think when I was working with Andrea, we worked with many people she'd previously worked with because she just thought they were great and she didn't let go of them out of her life just because they could no longer work together. And I think knowing that she felt so supportive of people, whether they worked officially with her or not, was something that, you know, made me think, we'll get through this period. It's only a minor breakup. Right. Right. Yeah. No, and I think one of the great uh, measures of, of a leader is that you develop talent that ends up in other places. And I think that's a great badge of honor. And I think Andrea feels the same way. I remember we had a very nice phone call afterwards. And because she and I have been friendly uh, as well, not nearly the depth of friendship that you have with her. But um, we had a good mutual friend in Chris Satterthwaite, who used to be on the board at Centaur. And I think that's how we met initially. I think she's very happy for you and, and clearly continues to be a great friend. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. And it's the same for me. You know, when I have people on my team now or in the past who move on to things they really want to do, I feel so proud and happy for them. And, and the great thing is in life, if there's people you rate who you like working with, normally there's a way that your paths can converge and maybe they'll converge in business. Maybe it will just be in life that you'll stay friends Maybe you can support them in other ways. For example, there's one guy I worked with at e-consultancy called Bola, who set up his own subscription business with his partner, which is really, it's a media brand, a subscription media brand for black women. So it's not, it's not for me. I'm, you know, I'm a white woman, but I thought what a great what great insight into an audience that is underserved by media. He is doing something great. And when I saw that they were looking for investors um, last year, I was like, yeah, I want to be part of that because 
this is somebody who I saw so much potential in. And I thought, wow, he's doing something great without the backing of any big media brands, without the backing of huge investors. He's doing something really brave and interesting. And he's seen something needs to be done and going for it. And I think that's a good example of where you can still have a contact with someone who mattered to you professionally. It doesn't always just have to be working for someone or they work for you. Right. No, I think we share that just staying in touch with people and you never know. It might just be there might not be any business issue or area of opportunity. It might just be good old fashioned friendship. But often, you know, I'm having breakfast when we're done with someone who I met when he was general counsel of the National Football League here in America. Must have been almost 30 years ago. And he's now uh, very senior at Fanatics, which is a huge company founded by Michael Rubin incredible entrepreneur. They just did a raise some crazy 1.5, some crazy number that they just raised, uh, uh, you know, to continue to grow their business. And, you know, Gary and I were just friends way back then. And we've stayed friends. And I think now there's actually something that we're going to do together business-wise with Advertising Week and Fanatics, but just staying in touch with people. And I think that's one of your hallmarks as well. Yeah, and I think actually one of the big mistakes in a business sense that people make about business to business is that it's not about people. There's a perception that somehow consumer marketing is about kind of, you know, businesses selling to people, but somehow you turn off your personality when you're coming to work. But I think every every business is filled with people and they all have feelings about things and emotions and it's just true in life. You have to do things. It doesn't mean you don't do the thing that is most efficient or that is the most right to do, but it's just natural. People want to work with people who are kind and nice to them and make them feel valued. And I think that is just a human instinct that sometimes gets forgotten. Relationships are just everything. 100%. So speaking of people, in a little over a month, we will be reconvening for the first live edition of Advertising Week in London since March of 2019. Uh, we almost got there in 2020. The pandemic had just emerged. We had done Advertising Week in Mexico City. And uh, it was a great success. It was the very beginning of March of 2020 in London, which was about 10 days later. And we were quickly confronted with a decision uh, and properly made a decision to not go forward at that time. That was when Boris was telling us, just wash your hands and sing happy birthday twice and everything will be fine. And our then president uh, thought it would be gone, you know, within a few weeks. We only had 15 cases, totally under control, I think, with the language uh, that he used. So we're coming back live. Uh, we're going to have a terrific year, I think, in London. What are you excited about? And what does it mean to you to be back and seeing so many people in person who you've only seen on a screen the last two, three years? No, I think it means so much on every level. So one of the big themes we have this year is creative capital. And what we mean by that is both that, you know, London is one of the great creative cities of the world, both culturally and in the kind of creative business sectors. And so I think being there physically, especially after such a long time apart, is such an important kind of part of it, such an important method message and so we've really tried to kind of embed some of those essentially London conversations moments into what we're doing with Advertising Week Europe 
But I also think there's there's that other meaning to capital, which is about the value, about how much this particular industry adds to the UK GDP, the European GDP. This is a hugely important export, particularly for countries that no longer focus on so many on so many industries like manufacturing. Our brains are what we export and our culture is what we export. Um, and I think this is something that we really need to kind of put back focus on, because I think it's an incredibly important industry that because of its nature got very heavily disrupted by the pandemic. And we wanted to be a place that helped I guess, reignite that valuable industry for Europe. I think, you know, very purposefully, and you know this, we've never really had a particular theme for any of the advertising weeks all across the world. There have been, you know, well over 30 of them by now, over 20 years. I think more. I think I I should count, but uh, it's way more than that. I know Sydney was the 25th, our first year in 2018. So, We continue on top of that today. The embrace of creativity for Advertising Week Europe in London, that seemed like the right move. Yeah, I think I read I read something that described this moment in time as the perma crisis, which I quite liked because I think sometimes it feels like that for everybody. You're going from the pandemic to feeling hugely affected by you know, war by the cost of living crisis. It feels like a real moment in history at the moment. And I think we were really keen. We were thinking, what is Advertising Week about? We're very keen on being accessible, inclusive. All the things we talked about before, um, being uncomfortable, we raise those uncomfortable topics on our stages. Even things that might make us feel uncomfortable, like how is advertising and sustainability compatible? If we're driving consumption, how can we also be sustainable? You know, there's all these great tensions in this subject. And I thought we felt for the first time this year, do you know what? We really need a bit of a rallying cry about the value of this sector and the global importance of this sector. Because people are living through this perma crisis for the rest of the time. Very, very true. Well, Ruth, this has been an absolute joy. I got to learn a whole bunch that I didn't know. Uh, We are thrilled to have you uh, as our uh, new global president, uh, an invaluable part of the leadership team. Uh, And uh, you are an inspiration. Uh, And for you, I was very happy to arise uh, at an ungodly hour and make sure we can get this done this week so we can get it posted. Uh, And uh, love working uh, side by side. I know the entire Stillwell family uh, feels exactly the same way. I feel the same way too, Matt, but I I bet you weren't surprised that I once actually kind of bodyguarded a man off stage. I think that's very much true to brand. So I'm glad we got to tell that story today. Yeah, not surprised. Not surprised at all, actually. All right, Ruth, thanks for doing this. We'll see you later. Take care. Bye. So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.